Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. Let you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and it is Tuesday, June 13th. Last week, we looked at the S1 IPO filing from meal kit delivery pioneer Blue Apron. If you consider that an example of growing competition in the groceries industry, at least on one end of the spectrum, our main topic for this episode comes from the opposite end, a more traditional brick-and-mortar expansion from the Germany German grocery chain Aldi. So, I'll also spend a few minutes talking about interesting news from Walmart and Microsoft, uh, in addition to the expansion that we're expecting from Aldi. And joining me via Skype today is Fool.com contributor Dan Klein. Thanks for being here, Dan. Oh, hey, Vince. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Um, so, kicking off because we have a lot to talk about today, um, let's start with Microsoft. Back in March, uh, I covered major developments in the video game industry, and one of those was the expected launch of a console update from Microsoft, which was at the time uh, just called Project Scorpio. So I want to circle back on that story uh, since the Electronic Entertainment Expo uh, has officially started uh, this week, and Microsoft made its big announcement giving Project Scorpio an official product name. That's the Xbox One X. And a lot of the rumors and projections for the new console have kind of borne out. So it touts uh, 4K graphics, uh, backwards compatibility, so your One X will play many of your old Xbox, Xbox 360, and Xbox One titles, while also working with your Xbox One accessories. Uh, Microsoft claims on its product page that the Xbox One X is the world's most powerful console with 40% more power than any other console. Dan, what are your first impressions here? <laughs> it's uh, really expensive, and nobody's going to buy it. <laughs> that, that's my. But I don't think that's what Microsoft is going after. So it's four ninety nine, and yep. that you know Microsoft has already shown that people will buy a cheaper console rather than spend four ninety nine. They 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 tried that last time when they introduced Xbox One or the Xbox, and it had the uh, the motion detector. I don't even the remember Connect. what that thing yes. is called. The Connect. And basically, people waited until they sold an unbundled version, and that gave Sony a little bit of a lead. But Microsoft still has those products. So this is a lot what, like what Apple does with the iPad Pro. They don't think a huge percentage of their audience is going to go buy the iPad Pro, but they want to capture the small percentage that want that and have a building block for the future. So this is sort of the next Xbox that only a very small percentage of people are going to buy, and then as the prices come down, it'll eventually be the 399 Xbox or the 349, and it will be the one that ties in really well with HoloLens and all the other sort of things that require processing power that Microsoft will is, is building and will become norms, maybe not this year, but over the next few years. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point in that I was thinking about who this console is really uh, targeted for. Uh, with the release, with the price tag, with the specs, uh, obviously you have your diehard uh, Xbox fans out there. Um, but ultimately, you know, this is still just an improved rehash of the Xbox One S 
that came out last August. So it's not a true next generation release, right? And yeah, and we're and we're probably seven eight years from a true next generation. So this is really an answer to Sony having a similar high end console, though I believe it's a little cheaper. And it's really building the platform so they can start to build out virtual and augmented reality. It, it doesn't add very much new except a faster processor and 4K support. The previous Xbox One had the backwards capability as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's it's meant to be exciting. But the reason you announce this at E3 is because it's for hardcore gamers. It's not right now a mainstream product. And the thing is, you know, you have the Xbox One X, but there's no, I think, a big thing. Uh, Thing that this console lacks is, you know, s- these new titles that are coming out along with it that are exclusive and will gin up a lot of interest in the product because you have these uh, Xbox One X X enhanced titles, so they'll be able to take advantage of the more powerful hardware and specs in this release. But and otherwise, the technology in the One X is supposed to make existing titles look better, and there might be updates to existing titles that help bolster um, their graphics with the 4K support. But do, con- do you have an Do you have an Xbox One? Uh, I do not actually. So I do, and I've never looked at any game and thought, "Wow, this isn't really awesome." And I'm older than you. I remember playing Pac-Man on an Atari 2600, where it was amazing because it kind of looked like the arcade. <laughs> you know, so so admittedly, I'm somewhat easy to amaze when it comes to games given where I started, but I don't think there's any person that's going to spend an extra $150 just for those enhancements, especially cuz you you have to have a 4K TV to take advantage of them. But this is really for the people that that have that. They bought the 4K TV. They understand the difference. They they watch the little bit of programming that's available. So it's really just a niche audience. But eventually, it will be a bigger audience. Yeah, I will uh, add that you know 4K televisions expected to make up about one in four TVs shipped worldwide in 2017. So the penetration is still limited. But um, you know a lot of the forecasts out there do say that. Uh, uh, 4K TVs are expected to grow in popularity and and, sh- and become sh- a bigger portion is, over time. Sure, shipped is also not sold though. They they shipped a lot of 3D TVs as well. Fair enough. So um, final takeaways from me at least. Um, I think uh, the point you made also about kind of how this is uh, this feels a little bit like history repeating itself. So you go back to 2013, a little bit of context. You know, Sony and Microsoft unveiled their actual next generation consoles, this being the PlayStation 4, the Xbox One, and Sony priced the PS4 at $399, Microsoft charged $500 uh, paired with that Kinect that you mentioned, Dan. And that ended up hurting the company, I think, with a little bit slower momentum in the beginning. And four years later, um, the divide in terms of performance, sales performance between these two consoles has widened. Uh, Sony has led this generation with about 60 million units sold. And while Microsoft does not report numbers for the Xbox One, estimates put sales at a Approximately 25 to 30 million. So today we have this similar situation. The PlayStation 4 Pro, which is uh, the you know the closest competitor, released last year by Sony to this Xbox One X, runs 3.99, and then the Xbox One X, obviously you mentioned $500, $100 more expensive. Um, it might have stronger specs, but really, are they enough to get you know most consumers to buy in? And you know, based on the experience so far, Sony hasn't released any specific sales numbers for their PlayStation 4 Pro, but said it made up about 20% of 
PlayStation 4 sales since the release. So uh, estimates of around 2.5 to 3 million. So not a blockbuster seller by any means. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they compete. $500 for that Xbox One X versus the $400 for the Pro. Uh, the console is. Uh, being officially released on November 7th. Uh, Moving on to our next topic, uh, we have Walmart sales associates taking to the road. So, Dan, you pointed out this news to me recently. (laughs) Um, We often hear about how major brick-and-mortar retailers want to leverage their extensive geographic footprints as an advantage over online competitors, because you you have all these stores located across the country, whereas more peer-play e-commerce players, they might have more limited networks of distribution fulfillment centers. Um, these efforts, though, they take various forms. And Walmart's taken an interesting approach uh, announced earlier this month where they want to have store employees actually deliver some of their online orders to nearby customers. Um, this is a small test uh, with just one sto- store in Arkansas near the company headquarters and then two, I believe, in New Jersey, uh, which is closer to the base for Jet.com, uh, which Walmart acquired for about $3 billion recently. Um, the number of orders fulfilled this way through with these uh, employee deliveries. It's only in the hundreds so far, so a very small test. But what do you think, Dan? Is this another well, is this another this, innovative idea or is this a another dart on the wall among the many a, efforts? It's it's a mindset. So when they bought Jet.com, and I've written about this a lot of times, they bought them largely for Mark Lorry, the the CEO, the the sort of serial entrepreneur. And I saw Mark Laurie speak at Shop Talk, and he talked a lot about infusing a startup mentality into Walmart. And I used to run a piece of my family business, a ladder and scaffolding company. And if a customer called and they said, yeah, I need uh, I need two braces or my scaffolding can't get up, because we were a family business, we had an all-hands-on-deck mentality. If that meant throwing it in the back of my station wagon and driving it out there in the middle of the night or on my way home or whatever it was, that's what you did. And that's what Walmart's doing here. I don't think they expect that a large percentage of their orders is going to get delivered by store employees on their way home. But this is just creating a mechanism. You can't do it willy-nilly at a big company the way you can at a small company. This is creating a system where if an order needs to go out, a manager could say, hey, anyone going in this direction, someone can raise their hand, the employee can get compensated for it. It's a fail-safe. It's a startup logic. At at Jet.com in the early days when you're trying to ship orders, Anything goes. Mark Lowry was probably stuffing boxes. That's just how it works. So this is really about getting Walmart to think we are not a physical store. We are in the business of getting products to people however they want them. Okay, fair enough. Um, some numbers I will throw out there, though, to put this in perspective. I know right now it's a limited test, and you're right. Uh, whether or not it becomes uh, you know, this major uh, avenue through which they can kind of bolster their e-commerce business, which has been growing uh, quite well since their Jet.com acquisition, since Mark Lore has taken over the online side of the business. But you know, the company has 1.5 million U.S. employees. They mentioned this in the blog post about this this initiative. You know, 90% of the U.S. population lives within 10 miles of Walmart store. So how this essentially works when, um, in terms of the, the details, you know, the employees only need to have their own car. They need to pass a background check, and then they get outfitted with a mobile app that essentially plans their deliveries uh, based on a route that's convenient to their commute. And then they can deliver up to 10 packages daily, and there's some weight and size limits of their choice so that they can handle it. Um, And you mentioned that the company 
uh, says that the employees are paid for their time, though there is very little details released regarding how, whether it's uh, the number of packages you deliver, whether it's uh, the amount of time you spend delivering them. Um, but when it comes down to it, you know, this touches on a topic I think that Dan, you and I covered quite some time ago, probably <laughs> a year ago, maybe more. We were talking about last mile delivery and logistics. And um, the idea that you might be getting your package from across the country, but that last mile often accounts for maybe fifty percent or even more of the actual expenses of get of the delivery. It's the big challenge. It's why Amazon has put warehouses in different markets, and they're working on crazy things like drones sure. or trucks that can three D print your item as you order it, and you know pretty much every way possible, working with partners to get it to your actual house. So this for Walmart just becomes another arrow in the quiver. You know, it's it's not that they're not going to stop using planes and trucks or or distribution warehouses for online orders, but there's going to be times when you go to order something and the only one of what you order is in a warehouse 3 miles or in a Walmart store 3 miles from your house and the logical way to do it is pick it off the shelf and bring it to you and that's something that Walmart has been working on with internal apps and different tools so so their logistics get better. So they don't have one inventory for the store and one inventory for the digital operation. They're trying to make everything one operation. And having been a retailer myself in a much smaller way, it is a big challenge when you have customers shopping in the store and even someone who calls you up and says, do you have a so-and-so? Can you set it aside for me when multiple people want the same thing at the same time? So this is a big headache for Walmart, but they're figuring out how to get it done and they're throwing a lot of technology at it and sort of matching it with just, hey, who's willing to help out, which should be good for morale. And when a Walmart worker shows up at your door to deliver your package, that's going to be good for brand loyalty as well. Yeah, uh, I will add that uh, you know we talk a little bit about the expense side with last mile delivery, and also just the turnaround time. Uh, you know, obviously you have the Amazons of the world uh, competing with one hour delivery, two days standard. Um, you know, Walmart noted that a lot of these employee delivered packages made it to customers the day after they placed their order, so essentially an overnight fulfillment. Um, and you know, this is I think just another example. Uh, when it comes down to it, of how the company has tested partnerships, uh, they went with ride-hailing services like Lyft and Uber to deliver packages previously. Um, you have companies like DoorDash and Instacart offering similar services, and but this is just a little bit more efficient. Instead of having the drivers from those companies come to your store, pick up the package, deliver, you have employees just doing it on the way home, and um, I think it'll be really interesting to see. I think going forward, just what other uh, ideas like this, Mark Lore will bring to the table now that he's running the online business. And it shows uh, kind of uh, the way you mentioned this mindset and how they are willing to experiment and grow that part of the company as necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think everything's in the mix. You know, if you're in a market where delivery via sled dog makes sense or hot air balloon or or whatever it happens to be or put putting it on a raft and floating it out to the iceberg. All of these things, in some tiny way, are going to figure in. Okay, probably not the last one, but most of these things are going to figure in. And Lori is just sort of building this culture of we have promised a customer two-day delivery. How do we meet or beat that? And that's a very Amazon way of looking at things. Because I'll point out, as someone who orders five or six things at minimum a week from Amazon, it's pretty often the two-day delivery shows up in one day. Sure. All right. Before we move on to our uh, next topic, support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work. 
your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Again, that's rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. So on to the all the expansion now uh, with the expected you know price war essentially that's heating up among the uh, various players in the grocery industry in the U.S. So news is that Aldi ex- is spending about 3.4 billion dollars to expand its store network to hit about 2,500 locations over the next five years. Um, the cur- company currently has about 1,600 stores, and it'll add 400 in 2017, and it'll spend also another, I think, 1.6 billion dollars to remodel a significant number of them. And uh, on top of that, you know, to really uh, kind of throw another uh, player into this uh, fellow German competitor, uh, low-cost competitor, Lidl will begin opening its stores this month. I believe on June fifteenth, uh, and it, as it plans an initial base of hundred locations. I think the first ones are opening up in the Carolinas in in Virginia. So, yeah, these are definitely uh, kind of some uh, first shots. In that price war I mentioned among the grocery stores and supermarkets, uh, Lidl has touted prices up to 50% lower than competitors. Aldi says they'll be at least 21% lower. Um, wh- do you think that uh, these uh, the entrance or the entry of these companies, the expansion of some of these German competitors, is going to really shake things up like they've managed to do uh, in Europe? I think. I think it's great for the American consumer on Absolutely. a number of levels. There's already obviously been been pricing pressure. In the grocery game, because you've got Amazon, you've got other players who can mm-hmm. deliver you some items, if not all items, in certain markets. But Walmart has already come out and said it's going to invest in pricing. You know, Costco, had, when they raised their membership fees, said, "Hey, we're going to put most of this increase back into lowering pricing," which is what they've traditionally done. It's not necessarily a response here. But if you're in a market, you know, I, I live in in Southern Florida. We have Publix. Pretty much that's all we have. There's a lot of Publix, there's occasionally a Whole Foods, and there's sometimes a Trader Joe's. There isn't a Trader Joe's near me. And if a Lidl or an Aldi comes in and it's conveniently located in the same realm as the Publix, Publix is going to have to go, okay, my prices, I've got to think about that. So just the presence of competition is is great for consumers. The other really important thing about this, and it's partly why these companies are moving now, is we have a glut of available retail space. So these companies, and these are small stores, 12,000 to 20,000 square foot stores between the two chains, but they're going to snap up space in strip malls and malls that needs to be filled, and that's gonna be good for other businesses. Even some businesses that are doing well but are being hurt by the fact that maybe the the Sears that anchored their strip mall went out of business. So there's going to be a ripple effect by all these stores coming in. Uh, Dan, I'd like to add that uh, a little bit of detail on exactly how these companies uh, kind of operate, and uh, so that they are, can, are able to offer such competitive pricing. And it's I think a when lot it comes of house to, brands, <laughs> yeah, exactly. When it comes down to it, for a place like Aldi. Um, to put up these prices where they can claim, hey, you know what? 
our prices will be at least 21% lower than the, any competitor out there. Uh, first thing is what you mentioned in terms of the smaller stores. Uh, 12,000 12, to 20,000 square feet versus uh, a traditional uh, Kroger or Harris Teeter, for example, might be around 50,000 square feet or more. So the smaller stores means less SKUs, which are essentially uh, the, the stock keeping units or the, the code assigned to each item. And that gives you uh, the smaller footprint, less of an investment there, and also just a simpler supply chain uh, with these in-house brands, which I think for Aldi make up about 90% of their merchandise. Uh, and This allows the company to work directly with the food producers, and they avoid a lot of the costs of marketing and also the premium that you get, uh, that you have to pay for the, the big branded products out there when you have these in-store offerings, or uh, in-house offerings. It's it's also a varied merchandise. So when you go to Publix, obviously there's a certain amount of seasonal merchandise. You know, when Valentine's Day is coming up, they're going to have a Valentine's Day section, and that that switches to Mother's Day when when it's appropriate. But both Aldi and Lidl do things like sell flip flops when it's going to be summer in a market where that's appropriate. So, and even their core food offering changes based on pricing. So I've often joked that you can't go to Aldi knowing what you plan to make for dinner. You have to go to Aldi and see what they have and then make your choices, which I have always found is a frustrating shopping experience. But that's how they drive value. If if their buyer looks at the chain and says, okay, um, I was going to bring in lamb this week, but the prices are too high, they may not have that on their shelves at at that given time. And you sort of have to go with the flow, but it does mean you're always going to get a better value. Okay, so um, kind of wrapping up a little bit of our discussion, I, I want to do I want to provide a little bit of context here for what exactly this market looks like, what um, the what Aldi and Lidl are kind of diving into and what uh, the competition, the competition, and the size and scale of this market is. You know, for U.S. grocery, food, and beverage industry, we're looking at uh, hundreds of billion dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, about eight hundred billion. And at this point, um, even with its about sixteen hundred locations, the reports I could find put Aldi's share at, at, at single digits, low single digits at that. But it's growing very quickly. Whereas you go to the leader of the pack, which is uh, again going back to Walmart, you know they have closer to about a twenty percent share of the groceries business in this country, and. Um, I was speaking to uh, Sarah Priestley, another uh, analyst here at the Motley Fool, before the show, and she brought up an interesting point in that uh, at this moment, uh, especially with Lidl's uh, entry this month as well into the market, I think a lot of American grocery chains uh, she mentioned she mentioned are probably just kind of getting the warning signs um, because Aldi and Lidl have made such a big splash in Europe. They've grown their market shares very quickly, double-digit rates. And from her personal experience back in the UK, they forced major chains like Tesco in the UK to really bring down their prices and kind of change the competitive landscape there. Um, so you know, when it comes down to it, it, you have the giant, the giants out there like Walmart, like Kroger, um, but these guys can really uh, induce uh, some of those price savings for consumers overall and kind of change the expectation of what our grocery stores look like. And, and, and I think it's going to force consolidation. 
you know, you, you've already through the past couple of decades seen not the total demise, but largely the very small regional chains have, have gone away or the single mom and pop grocery stores. A lot of those are gone. So some of these regional chains are going to have to combine to have the buying power. And you'll probably see some traditional grocery stores not be able to make the transition. You know, you now have an, in addition to Aldi and Lidl, you have Walmart, you have Costco, you have Amazon. Prices are being forced down, and if you've, you know, unless you're Whole Foods, who's built up a sort, a sort of premium audience, and they're having their struggles as well, it's going to be very hard to compete if you can't buy these items at the same prices as these much bigger companies. Yep. My last point here, and it's a little bit on competition, going back to Walmart. Um, so their grocery business makes up over half of their revenue, and uh, I was reading about a test that they started earlier this year. Uh, in over 1,000 stores, where they're doing a lot of pricing competition or pricing comparison to beat out places like Aldi and Kroger, I think, in anticipation of this uh, of this uh, increasing competition, the 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 more stores moving into the U.S. that they'll have to face off with, essentially. And you know, the hope is that they can lower their prices enough that Walmart thinks they've won over customers, you know, pretty definitively, and then they can adjust their pricing as necessary. And uh, there were some leaks that Walmart is going to some of their big suppliers, especially for some of the packaged goods. So think companies like Unilever and Procter and Gamble, and basically telling them, like, "Hey, we need the prices that you charge us to be 15% lower." Um, and the idea being that you know Walmart wants to reclaim the title of low cost leader. Um, and and that's a general big box practice. I know mm-hmm. I've done some selling to big boxes, and if you get a skew in. They will come back to you every year, every 18 months and say, well, how can you make it 3% cheaper? Yep. And in some cases, they'll even help you, you know, build a new factory or do whatever it is you have to do in order to get or, or say or you could say, yeah, if you placed a, an order that was twice as big, here's what the price could be. So they're going to work every angle. I think it's also worth noting that that I had a story earlier this week that uh, that at Sam's Club, the the Walmart version of Costco, their their warehouse club, they consolidated their in-house brand from a whole bunch of different labels under one name. And I think that's something we're going to see more of where where Walmart uses its uh what is it? Members Mark brand and really tries to compete with these people and that's going to put some pressure on some of these name brands to either lower prices or find new ways to compete. All right. Well, thanks Dan. Any Final points, uh, takeaways with this expansion uh, that's coming up uh, for Aldi and also for the you know the the openings expected from Lidl uh, before we wrap up here. Well, I think the next time I come to Virginia, I'd like to go see a Lidl. Um, I've been to Aldi, I've been to Whole Foods three six five, and I think as an American consumer, frankly, as someone who cooks dinner every night, this is an exciting time, and it's going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Dan, uh, for joining us today. And uh, listeners, you can reach out to us and the rest of the Industry Focus crew via Twitter at MFIndustryFocus or send any questions to industryfocus at fool.com. And don't forget to check out our other shows at podcast.fool.com. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Fool on.